Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels and I'm the host of this show. This is the podcast where we look at individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. These are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. Hall of Famers, if you will. I'm very excited to reach double digits in the main podcast thread. Uh, I've really enjoyed this project so far, and I've learned something new about every person we've profiled. I hope you're enjoying it too, and also learning a bit. In this episode, we're taking a look at the great Alexandrian defender of the faith, Athanasius. If you're a Christian and unfamiliar with Athanasius and what he did for the church, you're going to want to pay close attention. In the bonus episode, Why Christian History?, I talked about Christians standing on the shoulders of those that have gone before and have preserved the faith. Athanasius is one of the great men in church history, and all Orthodox Christians, meaning all Christians that can affirm the Nicene Creed, are in his debt. Speaking of Orthodox, I'm going to use that term a lot in this episode, and I just want to clarify that I'm not referring to the Eastern Orthodox Church of today or antiquity. I'm using it to mean Christians that hold a Trinitarian view as laid out in the scriptures, and affirmed by all true Christian churches. So with no further delay, let's get to it. Athanasius was born sometime in the decade of the 290s, probably between 293 and 298, though we're not exactly sure, in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria is the second city of Egypt, and was a major city in the Roman Empire. Egypt was the empire's breadbasket, and Alexandria was the largest center of trade. It had a thriving religious and philosophical culture that consisted of pagan, Jewish, and Christian influences. They were drawn to the city by the Library of Alexandria, the greatest collection of human learning and philosophy in the ancient Roman world. There's not a lot known of Athanasius' early life. He was still a baby or young child during the Diocletian persecutions, and he was still a youth when the Edict of Milan made Christianity a legal religion in Rome in 313. It's presumed that his family was wealthy enough to have him educated, and that his family was not a part of the local aristocracy. Athanasius was later called the Black Dwarf by his enemies due to his dark skin and his limited physical stature. So we know that about him. As you'll soon learn, however, his spiritual stature was enormous. He enters the scene of history in 318 as an assistant to the Bishop of Alexandria, a fellow named Alexander. Easy enough to remember, right? Also serving in the Alexandrian church, a man named Arius, who would become a crucial part of this story soon enough. Athanasius learned his theology and the art and skills required of a churchman as a deacon under Alexander. So I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but I think we need to briefly address the great Diocletian persecution. This was the largest, widest, longest, and most severe persecution of Christians by the Roman government. Emperor Diocletian wanted to wipe out the church completely. Church buildings were destroyed, Christians were caught, tried, and martyred by the Romans, but their preferred outcome was to have Christians recant, inform on other believers, sacrifice to idols, and leave the church. The persecution officially ended with the Edict of Milan, a letter signed by Constantine and Licinius, co-emperors of Rome, in February 313 just a year after Constantine converted to Christianity. The emperors were in Milan celebrating a wedding, that's where the name of the edict comes from, when the document was issued. It asked Christians to pray for the protection of the emperors 
and resulted in church property being returned without requiring any payment. In 325, the church held a council in Nicaea in response to the rise of Arianism, so named after its primary proponent, the aforementioned Arius. Arianism is the idea that Christ is not one with God, but rather a creature. The foremost of creation, sure, but still a creature, made to accomplish salvation for mankind. It arose out of the rejection of the second century heresy of modalism. Now, modalists believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were simply three faces or modes of God, rather than three distinct persons in the Trinity. In reaction to the modalists saying that the Son is the Father and the Spirit, the Church emphasized that the Son was not the Father and not the Spirit, and that they were distinct. Out of this emphasis, Arius shifted far in the other direction. Arianism grew in acceptance, first in Alexandria, and then in other parts of the Roman Empire. Recognizing the importance of resolving the Arianism question and other outstanding controversies, Constantine summoned the bishops and leaders of the church to council in Nicaea. The council of bishops debated the Arianism question for about a month, from May 20th to June 19th. Much of that time was spent understanding the Arian position, because while it had begun to spread beyond Alexandria, it wasn't particularly known or understood in the far-flung areas of Christendom. While Athanasius was at the council, he was not the main proponent or defender of the Orthodox Trinitarian position. That fell to Alexander, his bishop. In fact, as Athanasius wasn't a bishop, he wouldn't have even been in the room where the debate took place. Neither would Arius, for that matter, who had been excommunicated by Alexander. In the end, the council settled the matter in favor of traditional orthodoxy and used the Greek term homoousius to describe Jesus as the same in essence or being as the Father. Ironically, homoousius was a term that had been used by Gnostics a century before and had been put aside by the church for its heretical association. They reversed course on the term, but not the orthodox understanding of the Trinity. The council was clear that Christ was begotten of the Father, not created. Another important point that came out of the Council of Nicaea was that the Bishop of Alexandria was made responsible for announcing the official date for the observance of Easter. Alexandria was selected because of its reputation as a center of learning and its school of astronomy. This was important because the date of Easter changes each year because of its relationship to the spring equinox and the lunar cycle. The setting of Easter also impacted many other feasts that had to be shifted on the church calendar depending on its date. We'll see later in the story why this is important in Athanasius' tale. From this point forward, that is, post the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius became the primary defender of the Orthodox view of the Trinity. Unlike other heresies that had flamed out after the full weight of the church came against them, the Arians did not roll over, but kept fighting. One thing to understand about this time in history, especially Roman history and the history of the church, is that as Christianity became intertwined with the Roman government, that very same government wanted to have more and more say in the affairs of the church. Constantine was emperor, and he had two sons, one who followed the orthodox position, and the other who favored Arianism. As Roman emperors and officials came and went, they continued to influence the church, 
from office holders to official positions. It was a mess, and it all began in Nicaea. Three years after the Nicene Council, Alexander died. The story goes that as he lay dying, he summoned Athanasius, who ran away because he did not want to be made bishop. The church members surrounded the church and shouted, Give us Athanasius! And thus, Athanasius was elected to the bishopric and installed on May 9, 328. There was a little bit of controversy over his election, as he was younger than the accepted age for a bishop, but eventually it came to nothing. One of the things that Constantine did was to reverse the exile of many heretics after Nicaea. Among those that returned to their homes was Arius, who had been sent to Palestine. In fact, Constantine returned Arius to the church in Constantinople over the objections of the local bishop. In fact, the bishop in Constantinople actually prayed that Arius would die before he arrived there. That didn't happen, but Arius did drop dead suddenly in 336 at the age of 80. His opponents saw his death as divine retribution. Some modern scholars suspect it was poisoning. Uh, I think maybe he was just an old man and he died. Either way, the man was dead, but the movement was not. In 335, a group of bishops and church officers, unhappy with Athanasius, met at the First Synod of Tyre, where they accused Athanasius of mistreating followers of Arianism. They accused him of abusing his office of bishop and said that he was going to cut off supplies of Egyptian grain to Constantinople. Athanasius answered the charges and eventually the two sides went before the emperor for him to decide the case. Constantine ruled in favor of the accusers and Athanasius was exiled to what is modern-day Germany. Now remember, all of this is happening because Athanasius is holding firm to the Nicene Creed and the belief that Christ is co-equal to God the Father. He could have recanted at any time and saved himself much earthly suffering, but he continued to preach and write and stand up for orthodoxy. His stubbornness and intractability made him both a champion for orthodox believers and a punching bag for heretics. When Constantine died, Athanasius was restored to his position in Alexandria. His reprieve didn't last long, however, as the new emperor, Constantius II, Constantine's son, renewed the exile order in 338. Athanasius headed to Rome to fight the second exile. The pope was in his corner, and so were the local bishops. But eventually, Athanasius was sent to what is now Belgium. While exiled, Athanasius was accused of witchcraft and sorcery, and even murder by his enemies. None of those charges stuck, and in 345, Athanasius was peacefully returned to Alexandria by Constantius. He spent a peaceful ten years pastoring and preaching in Alexandria, before being exiled again. Emperor Constantius waffled again and moved the government and church positions back to Arianism. This meant that Athanasius had to go. On February 8, 356, Athanasius was leading an all-night church service when 5,000 Roman soldiers surrounded the church. They burst through the doors, interrupting the service with weapons bared and shouting, Where is Athanasius? Athanasius was urged to flee, but he refused until all of his congregants were able to get to safety. Parishioners screamed and tried to flee. Some were trampled to death by the soldiers. Athanasius fainted at the sight, 
and the monks in the church carried him out in the confusion. A new bishop, George, was sent to replace Athanasius, and he began to persecute the Orthodox in Alexandria. He installed Arian leaders in the local churches. Eventually, he exiled 16 more bishops, and he ousted many of the virgins, or proto-nuns, from Alexandria. He forbade the Orthodox from worshipping publicly, he flogged dissenters, and he was generally a tyrant. Through it all, however, the Egyptian believers protected and hid Athanasius from George and his minions. It wasn't just the Christians that bore the brunt of his ire. He also persecuted and imprisoned pagans in the city. Eventually, the populace had had enough, Christian and pagan alike. On August 29, 358, the people broke into the church where George lived, intent on running him out of the city. A fierce battle broke out with George's guards. George did manage to escape, but was eventually forced out of the city in early October. The Athanasians took control of the city's churches and held on to them until Christmas Eve, when they were finally forced out by the soldiers. George returned to the city the next November and held sway until the pagan emperor Julian rose to power in 361. With the pagan on the throne, the pagan populace was emboldened. They again overthrew George and his cronies, and this time they locked them in irons. On Christmas Eve 361, they got their final revenge. They gathered together and kicked George and the other prisoners to death in the public square. They placed George's body on a camel and paraded it through the streets, gloating in their victory. Emperor Julian issued a decree that allowed all of the Orthodox, including Athanasius, to return from exile, and on February 22, 362, he returned. That same year, Athanasius called a council in Alexandria and appealed for Christian unity for all believers, even those with different understandings or slightly different theologies. He did not bend, however, in his defense of the Trinitarian view. He did allow heretical bishops to affirm the Orthodox view and suffer only mild consequences. The leaders of the Arian movement, however, were given severe penance. He set about solidifying the Orthodox believers and bishops, encouraging and entreating them to hold fast to their beliefs. His time back in Alexandria was short-lived, however, as later that same year, Emperor Julian ordered Athanasius back out of Alexandria. For those of you that have lost track, this is the fourth period of exile for our boy Athanasius. This time, he went to the Egyptian desert, where he stayed until Julian died in June of 363. After the emperor's death, he quietly returned to Alexandria. The new emperor, Jovian, issued a decree returning his position to him that same year. The first thing Athanasius did when he was back in office was to convene another council which reaffirmed the Nicene Creed. He took the affirming documents from this Alexandrian council to Antioch in September. While there, he met with Jovian, who asked him to draw up documents clearly laying out the church's orthodox positions. Jovian didn't live long enough to receive Athanasius's white paper, however, as he died the next February. The new emperor, Valens, took the Arian view of Christ, and so in October 364, Athanasius was exiled for a fifth time. This time, Athanasius didn't go to what we now know as Belgium or modern-day Germany or even the Egyptian desert. He stayed in the Alexandrian suburbs for a few months 
even spending four months inside his father's tomb, until the Alexandrians convinced Valens to repeal the exile order. In 366, Athanasius returned to Alexandria proper for the final time. He resumed his work defending and supporting the Orthodox faith. Within two years, the church decreed that no new bishops could be consecrated unless he held and affirmed the Nicene Creed. In all, Athanasius spent over 17 years in exile. He used this time to encourage and undergird church ministers wherever he ended up. He also, importantly, used this time to write. His most famous and important treatise is On the Incarnation, where he laid out and defended Orthodox theology. Jesus, the Son of God, was the Word through whom God created the world. He came into the world in human form to save men and return them from their fallen state to a right relationship with God. As Athanasius said, Jesus became what we are that he might make us what he is. He also wrote The Life of Antony, a biography of Antony the Great, who was one of the earliest ascetic monks. His biography popularized the ascetic movement and inspired the later monastic movement in the church. Antony was an ally in the battle against Arianism. We'll cover him in greater detail in a future episode. If you'll recall, I mentioned earlier that Alexandria was given the task of establishing the date for Easter each year. Now, this gave the bishop of Alexandria, who was sometimes Athanasius, a reason to send a letter, called a festal letter, to bishops all over Christendom each year. In all, Athanasius sent 45 such letters. He used them to affirm orthodoxy and generally encourage the faithful. One such letter, his 39th, sent in 367, proved to be critically important. In it, he laid out the books of scripture to be trusted and relied upon. His listing of 27 books is the same New Testament that we use today, though his order of books varied slightly from that commonly used now. He wrote, These are the fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words that they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take anything from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees, and said, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. And he reproved the Jews, saying, Search the Scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. He also listed a few other books that couldn't be relied upon as canonical, but that did contain wisdom for the reader. Importantly, he also listed out heretical books like the Gospel of Peter and the Epistle of Barnabas that should be rejected. He was the first to propose the modern New Testament. So that last statement is slightly disputed. There is a document in the Constantinople Library that laid out these same books. The dating of it isn't certain, but it was believed to be written the same time that Athanasius was in the area on one of his exile journeys. Uh, so he may or may not have had any input into this listing. But at any rate, that list was never distributed, and Athanasius was the first to publish and distribute the list of the modern New Testament books. Athanasius continued to minister in Alexandria until his death on May 2nd, 373. He died in bed surrounded by loved ones and supporters. He's venerated in both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, 
as well as being much respected and loved by Protestants everywhere. He's a man that took a great many wounds to his person and reputation, but he held firm to the truth and authority of Scripture. He is without doubt one of the giants of the faith. Now before we say goodbye, I want to take a quick moment to introduce you to another podcast that you might find interesting, the Soul Anchor Podcast by my new friend Vidal Moreno. Vidal takes a century-by-century approach to Christian history. It's a fascinating look at the church through the years, and I've recently finished binging all 55 of the currently available episodes. Take a listen to a brief snippet of what to expect. Hello, this is the Soul Anchor Podcast, and I am your host, Vidal Moreno. In the Soul Anchor Podcast, we seek to anchor our faith in the truths of the Bible while we sail across the sea seeking adventures where they can be found. The 15th century will bring us the Renaissance and the beginning of the Age of Exploration with Christopher Columbus discovering the Americas. In Europe, the drums of discontent will continue to beat finally reaching a crescendo with the 16th century. This episode will be quite eclectic, focusing on a great thinker, a history-changing movement, the last East-West Church Council, and an amazing young female military leader. You can subscribe to the Soul Anchor Podcast through any of your favorite podcast platforms. Check it out. So that ends another episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you enjoyed it. I know it can be a bit of a confusing tale with all the emperors and exiles, so I thank you for sticking it out. If you have any comments, corrections, or feedback, shoot me an email at podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, God bless. Yeah.